from the Duck South Studios in Morgan City, Mississippi. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. I want to punch you in the face so bad right now. This is the On The X podcast, powered by DuckSouth.com. I didn't get a harumph out of that guy. Get the governor harumph. What we've got here is failure to communicate. Today's episode is brought to you by Advantage Multi from Bayer. Advantage Multi is veterinarian's number one choice in the prevention of heartworms, fleas, roundworms, hookworms, and whipworms. Treats and controls sarcoptic mange. Make sure your dog is protected by using Advantage Multi. I said what I said and I'll stand by it to the death. Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? And now, here are your hosts, Jay Paul Jackson. You just love to hear yourself talk, don't you? Even when you're not saying anything. Rocky LaFleur. Yo, Houston Kennedy. Please, Houston, we have a problem. And Josh Webb. Coons. We're raccoons trying to get on our back porch. Mama just chased them off with a broom. Welcome to the On The X Podcast, powered by DuckSouth.com. I'm Jay Paul Jackson today, joined by my co-host, Rocky. Oh my gosh, I'm so glad the season is over LaFleur. And our resident writer, Mr. Josh Webb. Guys, man, it's been a long season, but uh, Sunday, officially, nationwide, duck season came to a close. And Rocky, are you as, I, I said that tongue-in-cheek while I go, heck, I, for all I know, you may not be glad, but I'm willing to bet that right now you're tired and you're going, wow. Yep. Well, that's over with. <laughs> I tried to get a, I, I tried not to let there be any dead air there. <laughs> Because you always get on get on to me or Josh because, well, are you guys with us today? So I, I tried <laughs> to jump in there really fast to answer that question. Now, you know what? The last weekend was actually pretty good. We actually had some ducks show up for whatever reason in the state of Mississippi. You know, there was no weather to move those ducks, but we actually had some ducks show up. We had a great last weekend. So it actually closed out on a, a good note. So I, yeah, I kind of hated to see it. I kind of, in a, in a short-term effect, I kind of hated to see it go, but in the long-term effect, I'm like, God, I'm glad it's over. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, based on, you know, you look at how the season went, you know, yeah, we had a good stretch there, two, three, four days, but um, that was the longest, really consistent stretch that we had. So I, I, it didn't bother me Monday morning to not be going duck hunting because I, I would have been scared to death of what would have happened because of the way the whole season went. <laughs> yeah, same here. You know, ours was pretty inconsistent. Uh, but it ended on a high note. And actually, you know, I, I was really shocked when y'all did so well on Saturday, Rocky, because, you know, we talked, uh, and Josh and I talked, I guess, on Friday as I was preparing to maybe head that direction and really planned on spending the weekend with y'all. And then we got a huge influx of birds Thursday night at our place. and. You know, Josh said, hey, it's not looking great. You might want to stay. So I didn't make my annual trek to Morgan City. And I had a great shoot. Don't get me wrong. Um, Saturday was one of the best days of the year. But if I'd have known that it was going to turn back on there, I definitely would have headed south. I hate that I didn't get to spend the last weekend with you guys like we'd planned. But I'm glad you did good because you sure as heck deserved it. Well, Maloof, Maloof hadn't got it. Uh... Maloof hadn't got it all year but he, because he had a new baby, and Maloof came in for the last weekend. And whenever you can hunt with the Maloof, it, it's always <laughs> going to be a fun time. And he showed up Friday and hunted Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And he, I don't know. I, man, I love having Maloof on the podcast. I love having Maloof as a guide. I mean, the guy is really good at what he does. He's one of the best outdoorsmen I've ever been around. So whenever he came in, man, he brought the grill in. Trying to stay on the in the flooded timber we, all you know, day. Uh, yeah, Jay Paul. You know, I, I I guess you got the video and picture that I sent you. But in a, in oh, a yeah. three days in a three day span on that lake, we cooked nineteen pounds of deer sausage. Oh so, yeah, <laughs> yeah. We we had a ball down down the lake. <laughs> hey, had you ever hunted with Justin before, Josh? 
No, you know, we actually we actually never have. And uh, and I went. Uh, I couldn't go. I couldn't go down the lake with them Friday or Saturday. But but we stayed down there um, Sunday and and hunted. Um, me and him and and a few other guys. And uh, no, we we had a ball. We had we had a real good time. Is it not amazing what he's liable to pull out of, of those? But well, I, I need to tell everybody first. So Justin the Looper, buddy, he's not a stout, but he wears big man waders. And the reason that he wears them is because when he's guiding, he uses that roomy top area of those chest waders kind of like a storage closet. And it's always amazed me. You never knew. You never know what Justin's going to pull out of the top of those waders. I mean, no, I, I, no, and I mean, and, and look, yeah, oh, you never know. And I mean, I mean, seriously though, we went through a whole bag of charcoal, and and, and yeah, that's what I was gonna pounds. say. Yeah, we this, went we went through a whole a bag of charcoal. Yeah, no, this, this wasn't, wasn't like a grill. no, this no, it was charcoal. <laughs> he had a charcoal grill and an entire <laughs> bag of charcoal in the front of that boat when he uh, when I got that's what was what was funny about it. I knew he was coming to town, and I was actually hoping to get he wasn't going to get there till I didn't think till about lunch Friday so I was going to be back with my group and I was going to jump in the boat with him and go hunting well anyway I get back about 10 o'clock his truck's there no boat nothing and I couldn't find him and I saw one of the other guys I said did Maloof not come in he said yeah he got here about an hour ago I said where is he he said well he put his boat in threw a cooler a bag of charcoal and a grill in there and said bye and I, <laughs> okay. And look, I didn't see him till till the next morning. No, I don't know how long they stayed on the lake that day, but but no, we we had a good we had a real good time um, hunting, and and I know everybody that that hunted with him had a real good time too. Yeah, it's, I've hunted with him many many times, and I can remember you talk about a bag of charcoal. I can remember uh, one day we're going hunting, and we wade into this place, and we get there. And there's a little charcoal box grill sitting there, and he reaches into his waders and he pulls out a little bag of match-like charcoal. He pulls out a set of barbecue tongs. He pulls out a package of sausages, and he pulls out, I think, a Mountain Dew and a bottle of Sweet Lucy, and sets them all down right there on the bench in the blind. Look, look, the 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 tong the tongs were a hot button issue Sunday morning because somebody left them at 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 the camp house and we had to use knives. So, do you really com- really complaining about that? And he said, "Well, I, I didn't want to come down here and have to use my knife. I keep tongs. Where do you keep them?" And he said, "Right here." And opened up a pocket of his jacket, but they, you know they weren't in there. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, yeah. Just, <laughs> you just never know. You never know what he's gonna have going on. Oh, it's uh, crazy, man. But I hate that, that I missed with you guys. Let, me, let me tell you something. He is freaking heart machine. Um, you know, there's been many to attempt to try to keep up with him when it comes to the whiskey. And I swear the guy's got to have artificial liver. There's no way that <laughs> – and I'm not saying that, that he drinks a lot, but there's no way that other people can keep up with him, and they, they just fall out. It looks like a Pentecostal convention or something. They evidently, they evidently tried real hard Friday night because Saturday morning when I got to the lodge at five o'clock, it looked like an episode of The Walking Dead around there. There were people, people laying in and just random places, people crawling around moaning and groaning. My gosh, what did y'all do? And Maloof just on the couch snoring, just like nothing ever happened, and everybody in the place. Just pointed at him, said it's his fault. <laughs> no, and I guarantee you, when the alarm on that iPhone of his went off, he jumped up off that couch, his feet hit the floor like nothing ever happened the night before, and he's ready to go. Okay, I mean that's an, that's another that's another issue though that he did have was Friday when he took off down the lake, his phone jumped straight out of his pocket, and it's in the bottom of that lake right now. So he didn't have a he didn't have a phone, and he was relying on everybody else. To, to wake him up, because um, I was trying to get a hold of him uh, Friday night and, and couldn't, didn't hear anything out of him. I said, well, maybe he's just, you know, whatever. He just not replying to me. And then the next morning he informed me that, I don't know, he was putting decoys out, trying to pick them up, whatever. His phone went to the bottom. And um, so he he also went three days without a phone 
um, it was using everybody else's phone to communicate with his wife and, and everything else. It was a, it was just a, a show of the, the entire weekend. <laughs> I talked to him Monday, and he was beside himself because I'd been calling him, and I'd left him messages. And eventually, I guess because other people were calling him and leaving him messages too, not knowing what was going on, his voicemail filled up. And uh, so he called me on Monday. He's like, "Man, I know you're mad at me. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't have a phone." I couldn't call you on the phone because I didn't have a damn phone. It's at the bottom of the lake. I'm like, what? He's like, yep, Friday afternoon, first thing. Bent over uh, to adjust a decoy and went straight into the lake. And uh, I'm like, oh, my gosh, you got to be kidding. He said, yeah, it was pretty tough the first few days. And then by Sunday afternoon, hell, it was kind of liberating. <laughs> <laughs> and I do, and look, I don't don't mean to turn this entire podcast into Maloof Fest, but talking about the stuff that he will pull out or the things that he has that he that he has, he has that charcoal grill down to a science. When it came to cleaning up, he has a dedicated old decoy string and weight that he's made into a hook so that he can empty the grill and dip the racks down in the water to clean them off. He's got one designated for just the grill, and he, I said, "What are you? What are you doing?" He said, "I've just I've done this too much, I guess." I said, "You eat too much?" He didn't like that, but <laughs> he just, so I mean, he had man, he you'd never know. I mean, look, I I learned that very quickly. You never know what's going to happen uh, when when you're hanging out with him. With the maloof. Hey, man. All right, well, guys. Uh, Great opening, I mean, great closing weekend, we all agree. It's over with now, and, uh, you know, I don't know about you, Rocky, but I can bet, just like me, you've spent the last couple of days working on buttoning up everything there at Mossy Island Outfitters for the off season. Would that be right? Oh, yeah, yeah. I have trying to shut her down. Uh, I hadn't been able to do much, though, because we have, for the past three days, been showing 4-H. My family has really, really become involved with showing goats, which I pretty much have them all trained like labs. But we've been <laughs> we've been showing goats for the past three days in Greenwood, so it's been a lot of fun. My kids really enjoy it. Roy Ann really enjoys it, so we, we spend a lot of time at the barn together. So... But anyway, hey. So nothing disappeared is, while you've been gone from Mossy Island? No, nah, no. Nah, I've got decoys and waders and everything laid all across the yard right now. Uh, it's going pretty good. I know somebody that's been busy buttoning things up, though. Mr. Joseph Presley at Four Corner Properties. Man, he has been showing a pile of land lately. I was talking to him yesterday and really, really had a lot of people wanting to see duck hunting property because this right now is really a good time to see different properties with ducks on them because in the summertime you really can't tell you know if if something's going to have ducks on it or not so i mean wouldn't you say you guys joseph has got a call when it comes to looking for duck hunting property am i wrong hey, right about that no you're absolutely right and i agree with that you know he's been busting his butt lately um you know showing people because like you said when, when people are looking for uh recreational property especially especially waterfowl property you know now's the time because because there's there's going to be water there that's probably not there in the summer it's a little easier for you to see how things will work when it when it gets back around to duck season um if you're thinking about buying land so yeah no i, I stand behind that 100 percent. he is the man to go to if you're looking for it yeah, yes, sir. Joseph was the 2016 Recreational Property Real Estate Agent of the Year. And if you're looking for a duck hunting or deer or turkey or whatever it may be, recreational-wise, give Joseph a call at 601-540-7240. Jay Paul, Josh, yes, sir. Y'all, I, I've got a question for y'all. This is This question came up as I ran into some hunters over the weekend in a local restaurant the guys were out party hunting um not partying and hunting but they were party hunting together and happened to shoot a band 
Now, when you're party hunting with a group of four or five people, nobody really knows who shot what, right? We've talked about that before on the podcast. That's true. Let me ask That's you. true, but they weren't party hunting. They were hunting as a party, and it just so happens multiple people shot at the same duck, and it was banded. That's the right. PC way to say that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm just giving you crap, Rocky. Anyway, so, so, so several guys right. jump up, shoot, duck balls dead. Yep. How do you decide who gets the band? What's your way of handling that at Tiger Tail, Jay Paul? And then Josh, after he finishes, how would you handle it? Well, you know, it's funny because I've handled it a lot of different ways, I guess. Um, you know, I've probably got 20 bands of my own on my lanyard, and I, I've been a party to probably three, four, five times that many being recovered. So um, I've seen it done a lot of different ways. One of the most interesting ways that I've seen, we were uh, hunting in with Stillwater Outfitters, the uh, Renegade Brothers, out near Fort Collins, Colorado, several years ago, and we killed a banded can of goose. And literally everybody in the group shot. 10 or 12 geese rained down, so there was no way to tell exactly who'd killed what. And uh, what these guys did was they took a empty shotgun hull, Everybody got in a circle, and they spun that shotgun hole up in the air, and when it hit the ground, the guy that it was pointing it to won the band. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, that that one is pretty neat. Now, uh, also, yeah, I, I like that one. Go ahead. Go ahead, Jay Paul. Uh, I've also uh, seen it done the other way, where, you know, it was kind of like that same deal, kind of a spin-the-bottle kind of deal, where spin a shotgun shell, and whoever it points at is out until it gets down to the last two guys. And that's pretty interesting, too. But um, you know, normally, if it's three or less people, three, two or three people, we flip a coin or, or, or match for it uh, some way to, you know, Flipping a coin probably, I guess, is the most traditional way. But when you got multiple people spinning that shotgun shell, I, I think that's pretty cool, and I've done it a bunch of times since then. The one, of course, it depends on the scenario, but one of my favorite is, so whether it's a dog or somebody brings a banded bird back, and you have multiple people in the blind, take that bird, get everybody who feels like they might have shot it out, of the blind and stand shoulder to shoulder and take that bird, throw it 30 yards and have a foot race. And that, that, <laughs> gets, that gets interesting in a flood dry field and flooded clean field. I mean, that gets, that, I mean, you, you know, you typically have one or two people who just don't feel like getting soaking wet. So they, they'll, they'll bow out. Um, but, but you know, it, that gets really, really interesting. Well, it could actually kick the skinny guy in the knee before he took That's off. what I was yeah. going to say. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you, you know, you, you, it's no holds bar. There's, there's nothing, uh, you know, there, there's no, you know, apart from, from shooting each other, there's nothing you can't do. So, and that, it, it turns into a pretty comical event um, when that happens. I mean, that almost sounds like a movie. I mean. Duck blind with some guys on Real Foot Lake that kept a deck of cards 
uh, in the duck blind. And mainly it was for those long stretches like you get on the lake there when things are slow to sit around and play poker or whatever. But there was always a deck of cards in this blind, and when a banded bird was killed, everybody that thought they shot, they would uh, cut the cards, and the high card would win it. I thought that was pretty cool. You, you know, I had a guy that came through here a couple of years ago, and after I finish the story, I'll tell the way that we handle it at Mossy Island Outfitters. But I had a guy come through here a few years ago, and he had some fake bands in his pocket pocket and you know yeah some of them said f you and different things like that so when the dog would would come back with a duck this guy had stuck a, a fake band on it or you know i don't even know if we had a dog that day he may have asked me not to take the dog but anyway it stick these fake bands on different he did it on to different people on different days and it was pretty pretty funny to have these fake bands on these ducks because uh, a lot of them had good messages, and they're good oh, the total opposite way of. Uh, do you remember the old bands back in the late '90s? What, what were those bands called with the with the Bible verses on them? Jack Minor, but they've been around yeah, a lot Jack longer Minor. than the late '90s, yeah. and they're still around. Yeah, Jack yeah a good friend Foundation of mine actually has still one. bands. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember those. I didn't they? Did, did, did they still band them? Or sure. Jack Miner Foundation, they're, uh, they're up in Canada, in Ontario, uh, about an hour from Detroit, and uh, they have a, a sanctuary there. I guess it's off of Lake Erie, um, where they still, the Jack Miner Foundation still bans birds. They've got a museum there. You can go and visit them. It's pretty neat. I don't know that they banned the numbers that they were at one time. Because you sure don't hear of people harvesting Jack Miner bands today like they did when I was a kid. But, yep, my understanding is they're still rocking on, Rocky. So how do you do it at Mossy Island? All right, Mossy Island, we have always drawn straws. Or uh, if we don't have straws around, we will break a toothpick, break a piece of a toothpick off and, you know, put them evenly across your hand, holding them, and whoever gets the short one wins. And, you know, I was going to ask you this. This is Talking about duck bands, this was a conversation I had last week. But I found it interesting because I never really thought about it before. Let me ask you this. Do you think there are traditional places that are more likely to kill bands? Oh, I know it. And do you think there's a science behind that? Yes and yes. What about you, Josh? Yeah. No, you know, that's something that I've, I've thought a lot about because I definitely know areas and, and even, you know, down to specific hunting clubs that, um, I, I mean, they, I mean, I guess you really never know, but their logbooks, you know, show it that every year they're going to kill five to eight bands. And for whatever reason, it's, almost always i mean it's rare for it not to be on the greenhead so you know and that's always been a something interesting to me and something else that that um rocky and i learned talking to these guys down in south texas this year on the migration report is they killed um which they're just now in there starting their spring conservation snow goose season but they're easily i mean they're they're 42 or 43 bands on the year right now and but they kill 25 plus every year like i was asking about us is this uncommon he said well it's more than usual but we're always going to kill x amount and he said it's been that way since we've been in business so so i I definitely agree that there's areas but i've never had any in-depth conversation as to maybe why it is that way other than uh like other than like people killing resident Canada geese somewhere and they're two miles down the road from where they're banded and they kill them within a month of them being banded. Now that that's a little different in my mind. All right, before J Paul gives the scientific answer, I'm, let me say this, J Paul, because I know <laughs> you're, you're itching to jump in and give the scientific answer to this. I do know the science behind this, yes. All right. Well, I had a guide back in from 19... 19- 99 until 2003 or 4, he got it for me. And he hunted on a 
some flooded timber just right outside of Belzona. In one year, he killed seven banded ducks in this flooded timber. And yes, they were U.S. Fish and Wildlife bands. They were legal bands. And, you know, my thinking was behind this, and you're going to go into great detail about this, but if, if, if a family of ducks teach other ducks where to go to, right, in the imprinting process, mm-hmm. why, you know, when they trap these birds to band them, they shoot the big net over them, you're, you're right. trapping a whole family, right? Mm-hmm. And and they, these ducks, whether they range from, you know, three or four years old all the way down to first-year juvies, you know, they, they've been imprinted and they follow those other ducks. So is that, am I correct in saying that? Yes, you are. You, you're, 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 you're right on track with the science of it. And, and there are, there are actually about, uh, three different reasons why an area will be prone to kill a disproportionate number of bands compared to the overall population. And the main one, you're hitting right there on it, Rocky. So you got close to it. Let's talk about it just a second. All right, imprinting. That's a term that we've talked about many, many times here on the On The X podcast. And birds are imprinted um, to go to certain areas. And we have talked about how if you want to build a bad-to-the-bone duck hole, you can take that duck hole, put, uh, make it enticing to the birds to come there, leave them unmolested over a few years, a few seasons, and that imprint is going to become really strong. And on an annual basis, it's going to be a stop along the route, right? We've discussed that many times. So just like that's true in the migration south, that's also true in nesting areas. And so you're going to have areas where, oh, let me back up and say this. A lot of banding that takes place takes place during the summertime. And the reason for that is because during the midsummer, ducks and geese both molt and lose their flight feathers and there is a period of time particularly for Canada geese when these birds are completely flightless and so when you've got them congregated in an area it's a whole lot easier to shoot the cannon nets and and increase the numbers of birds that you net thereby making it easier to band more birds so during banding operations they're banding a large group of birds in a specific geographic area that they're at during their nesting period and post-hatch. Well, those birds are going to be imprinted, a lot of them, because they're there together on the same migrational corridors. And they're going to have the same waypoints along the way. Every year that they stop at, they're going to return to the same area every year to nest. And then when they migrate, they're going to try to hit the same areas along their migrational route. And if you're at one of those spots where you've got um, a population of birds. Let's say that that you know you, they're banding in Manitoba near the Delta Research Station. The birds they band, a lot of those birds get returned to the same place every year during their migration, as long as that imprint stays there, and they keep going back and finding it appealing to them. Now, if a bird migrates to an area three years in a row and there's no water there, with each year that imprint to go to that waypoint along the way becomes less and less until eventually they'll quit using the spot. But the science of it, for the biggest reason that an area um, recovers more bands in one area than in another is because the birds are imprinted on it. And, you know, there's a banding location where they band every year. And, you know, so you've got a high number of birds in that banding location that are banded that are going to return to that same spot, and they're going to kill a disproportionate number of bands. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, definitely. And and that's a pretty long-winded explanation. I mean, that's that's, great. That was a great explanation. It sounds a lot better than the old uh, Morgan City version that I try to give. (laughs) Well, but that said, there's three reasons that I know of, and there may be more. 
Um, but that's just one, and that that's the biggest one. You know, banding operations occur every year in a certain area, and then they go back in their migration to certain areas. And so, boom. The second reason um, that I can think of is because there are some areas, um, you know, specifically here in West Tennessee, there's a spot where for several years during a uh, research study that I believe DU was holding, they would go and they would band wood ducks every fall in early September in this area, birds that had migrated there. Well, the you know, clubs adjacent to that banding area during the fall wood duck and till season, you know, they would kill a bunch of banded wood ducks because, heck, they'd been banded three miles away. They were still in the area. They didn't leave the area. So during the period of that study, and even for a few years after that, this particular little area killed a lot of banded wood ducks every year. And I know that happens all over the country. I mean, we've had um, other people on with Joe Robinson from Michigan DNR. They have a banding operation um, up there every fall in Canada geese. And as a result of it, during their fall Canada season, the early Canada season, they also kill a lot of banded birds. So that's the second reason along the way. And then the third reason that I know of involves resident birds. And each year, um, a division of the Department of Agriculture handles calls about nuisance geese around the country. Usually these are urban birds, geese in an urban area that are feeding on sod, um, on grass, green grass. These birds, they don't give a rat's behind about corn. During the summer, they're all about grass, and they're in parks, and they're on golf courses, and they are doing property damage in these areas. And so during that flightless period for these Canada geese, the USDA will go in, they will cannon net these birds, they band 100% of these birds that they catch, and then they relocate them 50 to 100 miles away. And if you're in hunting in a relocation area, your chances of killing a banded goose go way, way up because these are resident birds. They're not migratory birds. So if they take them to a relocation area and the birds like it and they stick in that area, you're going to have a whole lot better chance of killing a banded bird during that um, early season or any resident bird that you might kill in that area than in other areas where relocation operations aren't taking place. So there aren't those resident Canada's banded in that area. And those are the three main reasons that I know about. Let me ask you this, Jay Paul. <clears throat> what is the most banded bird in the United States? Ooh, I'd have to say the mallard. But it might be give you, no goose. I will give you five guesses. Oh, my. If you can get it in five <laughs> guesses, I will buy you dinner. If not, uh, you owe me a duck hunt next year at Tiger Tail. All right, well, let me ask you this. Is it – I think I know the answer to this question, actually. And I don't think it's. I don't think this bird is waterfowl. That's what I was about to say. He said bird, not waterfowl. That's right. I think I think it's the uh, blackbird or starling. Mm, that's two. English sparrow. Ooh, I'm running out of guesses here. Got two left. Huh? I'm thinking. I'm not. I'm not done yet. I'm not throwing in the towel that easy. Um, Josh, I'll, Josh, I'll give you one or two. You want to guess? Yeah, Josh, mm, I waterfowl or no waterfowl? I didn't. I just said bird. Seagull. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, you know, I was actually going to say that. <laughs> um, hmm. I'm actually looking something flying right now. So a, do- a dove. All right, y'all are out. Who is what is? Oh, really? Oh, 
for real. I didn't know that. <laughs> wow, that's a good one. You stumped me. Yeah. I, hey, do you know that you can, you know, these catfish farmers around here love shooting these comrades because they can eat about a pound, pound and a half of fish per day. So they shoot the crap out of them. They can shoot lead. They can shoot however they want to shoot at them. They can kill them with. And so you find these washed up comorants or comorants on the dry land all the time. Well, it's always good to walk over and look at their legs because, you know, I found 10 or 12 different bands on comorants walking around just really? dead ones. Yeah. I mean, and they're, they're, they're U.S. Uh, Fish and Wildlife bands? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because you know they've been I trying never to. never knew that. Yeah, they've been trying to do away with them or figure out a way to get rid of them because they they eat so much per day and there's so many of them. I mean, you talk to people up on Lake Michigan and the Great Lakes. Good grief, they they're everywhere. And so they're tracking them, trying to figure out how to get rid of them. But you know the. From the stories that I've always heard, the comorant actually was never a resident of the, the North American continent. Y'all ever heard that? If you know this interesting story, a comorant was actually brought over by fishermen. Um, Did not know that. Yeah, comorants were used. They would tie at the base of the neck. They would tie a rope around their neck just enough where they could still breathe. But they would send. They would let those comorants go tied to ropes, and the comorants would dive and they would bring, you know, pound, two pound fish back up and they would try to swallow it. Well, they would reel the comorant in and they would take the fish out of his mouth because he could never swallow the, the fish because they had that rope tied around the base of its neck. But they were used for fishing. Are you making this shit up or is this something you really know about? <laughs> no, that is, I'm dead serious. That, that, that's really true. Wow, well, you know what? Story. I've learned a lot today. I feel like I've gotten better information <laughs> than I've given this go round. Let me tell you. <laughs> there, there was a. Uh, I learned all of this stuff from a from an older gentleman that that catfish farm over here, and he like a walking encyclopedia, and he told me all this information about the comrade, and I always thought it was pretty interesting. But yeah, I mean, they would tie that rope around the base of its neck, let it dive, catch a fish reel it in, and pull the fish out of its mouth. It's pretty cool. Man, I'm going to have to research this. Yeah, look, it's, it's really <laughs> online. I'm, I'm researching it as you. we speak. Josh, you let me know if you find <laughs> I mean, something. By the way, before we bring this thing to a close, because we're running out of time, guys, I, I want to I want to. I've really enjoyed this today too. I talk about an end of season podcast or end of the duck season. I mean, we're going to keep on doing these all year long. But um, this is pretty good information, you know, uh, along the way, particularly about the banded birds and the comrades. But I want to circle back because I know we've got a lot of listeners out there who are regulars, and you've heard us say over several podcasts now over three or four or five week period of time, you know, we want to get an expert on here to talk to us a little bit about um, party hunting and as far as the legality of it and about, you know, refuges, are they beneficial? Are they detrimental? Why do we need them? And we've said we're going to get an expert on here and we haven't, but it's not because Rocky and Josh and I haven't been trying to. Let me tell you, I never dreamed it would be so hard. Guys, did you ever think it would be this difficult to get a game and fish official to on record go on the air and talk about refuges or talk about party hunting? Yeah. The feds, what I've been told, the feds have to have written permission from Washington to, to discuss any of these questions. Yeah, it's a it's a hot button issue that um, I think they are faced with every day and that they, at some point, is probably discussed at least on a weekly basis, maybe in their office or whatever, but, but not not publicly and not even in this setting. Um they just either they're told they can't or they re, they refuse to personally do it. Um so I don't I don't know what we're gonna have to do to get past the the roadblock here, but we'll, we'll I don't know 
something. Because I talked to a guy this morning. I mean, so guys out there listening, look, we, we weren't just blowing smoke. We were on a quest to get somebody that truly is an expert um, to answer these questions. But just this morning, I was talking to a uh, federal government biologist, and uh, you know, we'd spoken actually in the past, and he'd indicated that he might um, appear on the podcast with us. So I called him up this morning and said, look, I, you know, we're going to keep this really, really tame and safe. We would just like somebody on the record, um, a fed to explain to us why we have the refuges, why they're beneficial. I mean, I know a lot of the reasons why they are discussed on the podcast, but, you know, we would like coming directly from somebody with U.S. Fish and Wildlife's mouth. And he said, you know what, man? If you want to hear me speak on it, you can come to one of the seminars or symposiums that I speak on the subject about in that atmosphere. Take notes, quote me, whatever. But um, unless it is an official speaking engagement, I'm sorry. This is an issue that I'm not going to discuss and can't. And uh, it just blew me away. So, guys, I know there's some folks that have been tuning in every week you know, wanting to hear the follow-up on these subjects that we promised you, and we hadn't done it yet, but I promise you, it's not because, you know, we're slackers, or at least Josh and I aren't slackers. I can't speak for Rocky. But anyway, <laughs> it's because we can't get somebody to come on board and go on record and discuss this with us um, on the podcast. So that's just kind of an update on, on things that have been going on. All right. So yeah, and look, and to- we're not even, you know, and and – you know, and we're not even like, look, don't hear state your name, where you live and work, and everything. I, I don't care if you if you talk into one of those things that disguises your voice. I just I just <laughs> want to I just want some answers. You know, I'm not, you know, but I don't know. We'll 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 get over Hello, the hump. Some, yeah. Hello, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. See, that would be fine. I don't I don't care. Um, I just, and I don't want to grill you, whoever it ends up being. I just there's just some questions that we want to cover, some topics. But anyway, anyway. Well, there's so many Paul. myths. We want to separate the myth from the fact. And guys, you know that's what we try to do here on the podcast. We want to give you accurate information. Uh, that's what we're about. It's about you know the Duck South community is a network of information to help you be more successful as a waterfowler and understand. You know, not only the the rules and laws that govern rod fouling, but also why folks do what they do to benefit it. And so we're on a quest. Hopefully, it's going to happen soon. But to, now let's get back to the comrades. So you've been researching there, Josh. Is Rocky full of BS, or have you found anything to support the uh, comrade fishing on a string story? Ooh, okay, I was going to say I have not confirmed or denied the fisherman's tale yet. But um, um, but I am looking at, I mean, you know, the banding of comrades and and things like that. They actually called the the double crested comrade. Um, uh, I'm just, I mean, there's all kind of stuff on the on the. I never knew they were called uh, the double crested comrade. It's just like I didn't realize until this morning that the official name for both the shoveler and the pintail, I knew it was Northern Shoveler, but until you told me earlier today before the podcast, I didn't realize it was the Northern Pintail and the Northern Shoveler. Northern Shoveler. Well, you know, I saw something I was telling you. I saw something the other day, a video or something. There was a bunch of ducks feeding, and somebody said, you know, take a look at all the Northern Pintails, and it never really dawned on me, but that is... That is what they're called. Even on the little sheet that talks about how many you can you can harvest, it'll say northern pintail. And there are some places, I mean, I, I've seen it. I don't know if it's on that particular sheet, but, you know, where they're also called a northern shoveler. You know, where a shoveler's called a northern shoveler. And I don't know why that is. It never dawned on me to ask that question. But it never, hey. I've I've never heard a reason behind that. And well, there you go, for Unless they've got them, you know, a different kind of them wearing sombreros south of the border. I don't know. <laughs> they might. I don't know. I'm going to give you All another right, little interesting ahead. fact about the comorant real quick. If you ever kill one or, well, you can't legally kill them outside well, you can of. you if you've got a depredation permit. Yeah. 
I mean, if you're on the old, old catfish pond or something like that, you can. But the next time I'm out at the, the old ponds with my buddy that owns a, uh, he owns about 1,800 acres of catfish ponds. But next time I'm out there, I'm going to cut the, one of the breasts of a fresh-killed comorant open. You should see it. There is a web of worms or parasites that cover the breast of a comorant. It's not pretty that. unreal. It's pretty gross looking. Stink. Oh my God, those suckers stink when you bust them open. It's, mm. it's as bad as a hooded meganger. You know, the old saying about the hooded meganger, you know, how you eat a hooded meganger, you cook them with a boot, you throw the hooded meganger away and you eat the boot. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, uh, you know, a hooded mcandrew and a comorant, you know, both, I guess, feed on fish and just, oh, God, they smell awful, just rotten. But, I, look, we're I'm going to actually go with my buddy that's a pond owner. We're going to go comorant hunting in the next uh, probably week or two. And we've got decoys. We'll set them out and we'll hunt them, get on the edge of these ponds and hunt them. And you're talking about decoy in action. Man, these suckers will just dive bomb, dive bomb into a, a group of comorant decoys. And you're talking about fun shooting? Ooh, it's fun. Shoot lead. <laughs> so I'll get some video of a hunt, and I'll take a picture of a breast for you, Jay Paul, and show it to you. I can't wait. I, I'd like to see that. I think that's going to be pretty interesting. Well, guys, we're out of time here. Before we close it out, Duck season's over with. We've got to wait another nine and a half months. Uh, how you guys feel about that? Josh, you go first. I'm I'm perfectly fine with it. Like I said, it was so inconsistent. It was just even, even scouting and finding birds, you really never knew what was going to happen the next day. So I, I, it did not bother me to, to hang my waders up after this season. How about you, Rocky? Your final thought on the 2016-2017 waterfowl season? Uh, it put a it put a hurt on my body, man. I was walking around this these 4-H shows. My knees are banged up. Josh, go ahead and laugh. You know why one of them is messed up? Ankles. I got it. Achilles are coming out of place. <laughs> was he trying yeah. to dance with bitches strippers again? Uh, have you not? Hey, uh, real quick before we close this out, Jay Paul, I don't know if you know this. Uh, Josh and I were recording migration reports about a month ago, okay? And <laughs> I was recording this migration report. I happened to be at a farm where there's a turkey. And you know how crazy Josh is about turkey hunting. Sure. So I, we had just finished recording with JJ Kent and from Kent Outdoors. And so anyway, I, we had just hung up, turned the recorder off, and I said, Josh, listen to this. Well, I, if you clap your hands or stomp your feet, this turkey will gobble. So I stomped my foot, and little did I know, right where I was stomping my foot, was about a six-inch pothole. And oh. dude, when I fell, when I fell over into it, my knee buckled backwards, and I just, I, I started screaming and grunting. And Josh is sitting there laughing. Uh, just, I wish I would have still been recording. And, and um, in between, in between breaths, he's, "Are you okay? <laughs> <laughs> Are you okay?" <laughs> and Roy Ann, Roy Ann comes is. running out. I, I just tell her, "Roy Ann, get me to the hospital. My knee is completely blown, Man. and it's still hurting to this day." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh my god! I, I, I hate, to, I hate uh, to see it go. Uh, it was another bad year overall for Mississippi, I would say. But uh, any time, look, I missed the company at the lodge worse than I missed the duck hunt. I'll say that. You know, the guys that hunt with me, man, we have a great time shooting ducks and hanging out. That's what I'll miss the most. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. You know, for me myself, I've got to say that Sunday afternoon, um, Sunday was my 24th wedding anniversary. And, uh, you know, so I wasn't going to stay down at the club like I normally would do on, on the last day of the season and spend the night cleaning up and stuff like that. I'd been trying to tidy up as much as I could, you know, the last, that Friday and Saturday beforehand since I'd stuck around and not came to see you guys. But, you know, I, w I went out hunting Sunday afternoon by myself, just me and my dog. And, uh, 
about four o'clock that afternoon, four fifteen, I killed a big bull sprig pintail to finish out my six duck limit on Sunday afternoon. And when that last duck hit the water as the sun was going low, I sat there in the layout blind after the dog picked it up and just watched, you know, for a little while. And I got to say, man, I was probably more uh, sorrowful Sunday than I've ever been before to see a season go. And even though it was a tough season, I probably hunted harder than I've ever hunted in my life. I, I can never remember being so, you know, sorrowful at the end of a season because I had a great time. I hunted harder than I've ever hunted in my life, even more than when I was filming for it. And I had some great hunts, and I had some terrible hunts. But the thing that really stuck with me was on the best hunts that I had this year, we didn't always limit out. I can remember two or three hunts where, you know, we didn't kill a limited ducks, but the ducks that we killed, they all finished. And I got to watch a kid take his and a little girl both take their first duck and ducks that we called in and really did it right so they could see the magic of it. I got to spend some time with really, really good friends laying in my man cave, you know, watching birds work and just talking about life. And so when it was over with Sunday afternoon, that was the part that really hit me. And I'll tell you what, we may, you know, I don't know, you never know, heck, anything could happen. I may not have another duck season, but as glad as I was being so dang tired and stuff for it to be over with, I'm also pretty dang thankful that I had such a great experience and that, that we put another one in the books. And, you know, right now I'm a little bit sad about it, and I'm pretty sure that, you know, uh, that's fixing to turn to, to hunger, you know, and anticipation, <laughs> waiting for the next one. So overall, I'd say it was a really, really good year. And it was the first year of us doing this podcast. Got to spend a whole lot of time with both of you guys and also our buddy Houston Kennedy on the air. And, and so for me, the 2016-2017 season was really special for a lot of reasons. The quality of the hunts I had, the good friends, and getting the launch this podcast uh, and make it possible for the Duck South community with you guys. I want to thank you both for that. Oh, same to you, Jay Paul. Man, it's been fun. I've actually learned a lot from being on this podcast with you guys. I've learned yeah, it's been a lot of fun. A, a scientific way than the old Morgan City uh, verbiage. <laughs> hey, well, listen, brother, we got a lot more to come. And for all you guys out there that, that went through this season with us, just because the season's over, don't go away. Keep on coming back because we're going to keep doing this a couple times a week. We're going to keep on talking about the things that are important in waterfowling. We're also going to hit on turkeys a little bit. Uh, but, bass and crappie fishing, the things those, you know, in the Duck South community really, really like to do. Even maybe talking a little bit about whitetail. Of course, we got our buddy Jake Latondras, that's uh, our expert turkey and whitetail guy. And uh, so we got a whole, whole lot more to come as we go. But until next time, on behalf of Rocky and Josh, Houston, Jake, and all of us here, uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to listen once again to this edition of the On the X podcast, powered by DuckSouth.com.